Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's word and apply his message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today is part one of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 16. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our final chapter, Romans 16, our final chapter of Romans. And the theme tonight is obedience of faith. We saw it in chapter one. We see it again in chapter 16. It's the bookends of Paul's letter, obedience of faith. It was in his salutation. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in Holy Scripture, the gospel concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and designated son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including yourselves who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. That was his salutation and now his farewell. The same theme, the obedience of faith in his closing remarks. Now to whom who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret for long ages, but is now disclosed and through the prophetic writing is made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. You see how similar they are, the salutation and the farewell and the theme, the bookends being the obedience of faith from Alpha to Omega, the bookends of Paul's letter from A to Z, as we would say. And then he also mentions the prophets in both the opening and the closing remarks, which he proclaimed beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, which we know are the Old Testament prophets. The prophets, again, in this in the farewell tonight, it's now disclosed through the prophetic writings and made known to all the nations according to the command of the eternal God. So those prophets were very important to Paul. And we say in the Nicene Creed every Sunday, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, and who with the Father and the Son is glorified and adored, and he has spoken through the prophets. The Holy Spirit speaks through the prophets. At my church, St. Margaret Mary, the prophets are front and center painted on the wall. I love it. And I always think when I say that line, I believe in the Holy Spirit who has spoken through the prophets. Just as Paul is reminding us tonight, God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. And again, in his farewell tonight, it's now disclosed through the prophetic writings. It's made known to all the nations according to the command of the eternal God. And Paul also reminds us tonight, it's all mystery. In this line in his farewell, in the final doxology, according to the revelation of the mystery, the mystery which was kept secret for long ages. Mystery, mystery, mystery. Paul's all about mystery. In fact, what is mystery? Something that's difficult or impossible to understand or explain. The final piece of the puzzle was missing, and that final piece of the puzzle has been found, and it's the risen Jesus Christ, Son of God. Paul will talk 16 times in his letters about the mystery, the mystery hidden for 
ages, the mystery of Christ, the mystery, let me tell you a mystery, a mystery hidden, a mystery of Christ, a mystery of faith, 16 times. And we're moving on next to Ephesians, and I think he sums it up best in Ephesians 3, 6 of the 16 times when he says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's the mystery. The mystery is Jesus Christ. He's that final piece of God's love puzzle for us. And the Catechism at 774 says this, the Greek word mysterion was translated into Latin in two terms, mysterium and sacramentum. In later usage, the term sacramentum emphasizes the visible sign of a hidden reality of salvation, which was indicated by the term mysterium. And in this sense, Christ himself is the mystery of salvation, for there is no other mystery of God except Christ. That to me was a beautiful catechism quote and what Paul knew, that Jesus Christ is the final piece of God's mystery. 774, the saving work of his holy and sanctifying humanity is the sacrament of salvation, which is revealed and active in the church's sacraments. The Eastern church calls calls them the holy mysteries, the mysterium. The seven sacraments are signs and instruments by which the Holy Spirit spreads the grace of Christ, the head, throughout the church, which is his body. The church then both contains and communicates the invisible grace she signifies. It is this analogical sense that the church is called a sacrament. So in, uh, in Heidelsheim, Germany, the cathedral there houses a beautiful epitaph, and it shows the distribution of the divine graces by means of the church and the sacraments or the mysteries, the mysteries. And when we pray the highest prayer of the church, the Holy Mass, this is our direct participation in the sacred mysteries of Jesus Christ. The priest right off the beginning, the priest invites us, the faithful, into this penitential act. He says, brothers and sisters, let us acknowledge our sins and so prepare ourselves to celebrate the sacred mysteries. So Paul is right when he uses mystery 16 times. Christian mysteries require a supernatural explanation. Christian mysteries, a few key examples include like the nature of the Trinity. It's a mystery. The virgin birth of Jesus. It's a mystery. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a mystery. And these mysteries in the sense that they cannot be explained easily or apprehended by reason alone, the word mysterium is used 27 times in the New Testament. It's not like the modern English meaning of mystery, but it's more mystical. In the biblical Greek, the term is that which awaits disclosure or interpretation. It must be unveiled revealed. Paul puts it this way to the Corinthians, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now we know in part, but then I shall fully understand and be fully understood. So that which awaits disclosure or interpretation, there's a mystery, a mystical sense to it. In 776, the sacrament, the church is Christ's instrument. She is taken up by him also as the instrument of salvation for all, the universal sacrament of salvation, by which Christ at once manifesting and actualizing the mystery of God's love for men. The church is the the visible plan of God's love for humanity because God desires that the whole human race may become one people of God, form one body of Christ, and be built into one temple of the Holy Spirit. 
Now, what a mystery the transubstantiation is. It, it is the change of the whole substance of bread into the substance of the body of Christ and the whole substance of wine into the substance of the blood of Christ. And right after that miraculous mystery, the priest invites the faithful to proclaim the mystery of our faith, the mystery of Fidei, the mystery of our faith. It can't be known unless God revealed it. And in the simplest form, we all proclaim Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. So in the Roman Catholic Church, First Council, Vatican Council, reaffirmed the existence of mysteries as a doctrine of the Catholic faith. And it says this, if anyone say that the divine revelation contained no mysteries, but that through reason rightly developed, all the dogmas of the faith can be understood and demonstrated from natural principles. Let him be anathema. That means let him be excommunicated. They're saying that there is mystery involved in our faith. The mystery religions of antiquity, days of antiquity, were religious cults, and they required an initiation, an initiate, or a new member before they could become accepted, sometimes had different levels of initiation as well as doctrines, which were mysteries, and in the sense of requiring supernatural explanation. And in some parts of the doctrine, they were apparently only known to their priests. We talked last week, underneath St. Clemente was the Roman cult of Mithras. They had their own mysteries. Santa Maria Sopa Minerva in Rome is St. Mary's above or over Minerva. Minerva was a Roman god. First, in that building, it was a, bil- a temple to an Egyptian goddess named Isis. Then it was built over to Minerva in Rome, who's also Athena in Greece. And now today, Santa Maria, St. Mary's over Minerva. So temples were built over one another. A lot of people visit that one because St. Catherine of Siena's body is there. Her head is not. That's in, in Siena, Italy. But her body is buried there, as well as Michelangelo's Christ Redeemer. Beautiful sculpture. People go to that church a lot. But the mystery traditions were popular in ancient Greece and during the height of the Roman Empire. And then parts of early Christianity used mystery, secret initiation in in the same way. It was a mystery. Now, my mom had the anointing of the sick this week. She's in Minnesota in a memory care center, and the hospice nurse said it's time. And I noticed that when mom received the apostolic pardon, which is a beautiful prayer, the priest says the last blessing, and he says this, through the holy mysteries of our redemption, may almighty God release you from all punishments in this life and in the life to come. May he open to you the gates of paradise and welcome you to everlasting joy. It's a beautiful prayer and it's meant to speed the penitent soul to the gates of heaven, removing the punishment due to sin that they have already confessed or have fully repented of in their hearts. It doesn't guarantee that someone will go straight to heaven, but it clears everything off the road, so to speak, so that soul can freely choose to run toward the arms of Jesus. That prayer is a supreme act of God's mercy. It has great power. It draws on the authority of St. Peter to loosen, to bind from Matthew 16. And it is a gift to the soul on their deathbed. And the added benefit of giving peace to the family and friends, assuring that they have done all they could do to bring a soul closer to the gates of paradise. It's a mystery. Our whole faith is a mystery. And in Paul's last chapter, in his doxology, he'll call, he'll, he'll call on the mystery. A doxology is a short hymn of praise at the end of a canticle or psalm or a hymn. And in tradition, uh, in the Jewish synagogue, 
a, a doxology would always terminate the section of the service. A doxology in our liturgical formula is a formula of praise or glory to God. And so listen to Paul's final doxology. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and to the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed. Uh, and through the prophetic writings which have been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God. Be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Oh, what a letter it's been. What a climb it's been, right? Studying Paul's letter to the Romans has been like climbing a mountain. In Rome, there were seven hills of perfection, seven hills. You had to cross, so you had to cross the Tiber River to get to the Vatican. Climbing the mountain of Paul's letter to the new Roman Christians. We started at the base camp back in September. We had an overview and we had history of Rome because context is very, very important in studying. Now, the base camp, the base camp, we started, we had to know literary devices. We had to know that Paul uses rhetoric and diatribe, and we had to understand some first century history. But then we moved from base camp. We also learned down at the bottom, we learned Paul's very first teaching on salvation, his thanksgiving and the power of the gospel. We learned he's not ashamed of the gospel, that it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith first the Jew and then the Greek. And it is the righteousness of God revealed through faith for faith as it is written, he who through faith is righteous and shall live. Then we had to learn about sin. And remember, we learned the bad news first. Paul wanted us to get the bad news out of the way, the problem of sin. We learned the bad news, why we need a savior. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men who by their wickedness suppress the truth. He gave us the bad news first, but then he moved us quickly to the good news, the good news of salvation, that since we have all sinned and have all fallen short of the glory of God, that we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Christ. Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as an expiation of his blood to be received by faith. Then we climbed after salvation. We received salvation, surely a gift of grace. And then Paul encouraged us to move into sanctification. Remember that? He's, he encouraged us to die, to be baptized, to die and to rise with Christ in the sacrament of baptism. But as fallen humans, we would still be fighting against this inner conflict, concupiscence, and our flesh would be at odds with our spirit and it'd be a fight. But this new life in the spirit would help us to fight against the flesh if we lived by the spirit of God. But he said, if you suffer, suffering would be expected, but there would be future glory for all those who persevere till the end. So he taught us a lot about sanctification. Then we move further up to mountain to learn the sovereignty of God, that God is King of King and Lord of Lord over all people of all time, God's sovereignty. And then as we summit the mountain, Paul tells us about service, that it's not just for us, but that we must go out and that the Holy Spirit has imparted each of us with different gifts to be used for God's glory. And so when we summit that mountain, we want to serve others. We want to give our life away. We want to share this new life in Christ with the spiritual gift that God has imparted to each of us. And Paul told us a lot about loving one another in unity and not judging one another and not making another stumble. And so we summited the mountain of 
Romans, but it's just the beginning. It's just the beginning to our deeper understanding of this gospel, this euangelion, this mystery that is the Gentiles, our fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The summit of this mountain of this gospel is that Jews and Gentiles alike are saved by Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah. He is universal for all. And he wants us to all be united as one body in Christ. The church, Christ, is like a sacrament, a sign, an instrument of communion with God and unity among men. And the church's first purpose is to be the sacrament of the inner union of men with God, because men's communion with one another is rooted in the union of God. And the church is also the sacrament of unity of the whole human race. And in her, this unity has already begun since she gathers men from every nation, from all tribes, people, and tongues. At the same time, the church is a sign and an instrument of the full realization of the unity yet to come. So Paul begs us to have unity as Christians and non-Christians, to have unity in the human race and to have the obedience of faith, to stay faithful to the end. So we started at base camp and we summited, learning to live this radical love and unity so that the whole world would know that we are Christians by the way we love one another. He died for it, that we would live such a radical obedience of faith in complete love and unity with one another. I'm getting teary because I look at the news and I see the lack of unity in the world and even within the church. And that would make Paul very sad. He would be preaching us the gospel. The gift of the risen Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the cause of God's grace. And God's perfection of grace is always found in the seven sacraments of the church. The Holy Spirit is in each and every one of those sacraments. Obedience of faith is the effect of the gift of God's grace. It's there any time we want it. True obedience is the fruit of faith. So obedience of faith from Alpha to Omega, from Romans 1 to Romans 16. Now, today we look at Vatican City. It's the world's smallest independent city-state. It's surrounded by Rome, Italy, and it's it's the headquarters of the Roman Catholic Church. Paul would really want to visit that church in Rome, Italy, when he wrote this letter in Corinth to the Roman Christians. He wanted to take up a collection from Rome on his way to Spain, so eager to get to where the gospel hadn't yet been. Peter is sent to take the Galleon to the Jews. Paul would take that same message to the Gentiles, and both of these apostles, these powerhouse apostles, had the most beautiful feet. As Paul reminded us, how can men preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The apostles Peter and Paul are giants in the obedience of faith. They fought for the Lord until the end. They were both martyred for our Lord Jesus Christ and his good news. We are leaving Rome in our study as we complete Romans. Peter was killed in Rome, hung upside down on a cross. Paul was beheaded in Rome. And if you go to Rome, you'll see the old Appian Way. It's still there. All roads lead to Rome. They laid those stones so well. The Appian Way is still there. And there's a little church, Quo Vadis Church, Domine Quo Vadis. It's when Peter was leaving Rome. The persecution was heating up so greatly that he was going to flee. He was going to leave Rome. And it said he was fleeing Rome 
to avoid execution and he met the risen christ on the road he met the risen jesus as he's leaving as he's running away as he's exiting rome and he says quavatus domine which means where are you going lord he sees jesus christ risen and jesus says i'm going to rome to be crucified again and at that point peter gains the courage to continue his ministry in rome and he turns and he goes back to the city where he eventually will be martyred now there's a church there on the spot that commemorates this memory of Peter going back. And uh, they say the real footprints of Christ are housed in the chapels of relics at the Basilica of St. Sebastian. But it's just a beautiful scene to reflect on for each of us. Are we willing? Are we willing to lay down everything and go back to Rome? Go back to where we might be martyred? Go back to work tomorrow? Go back to the office? Go back to school? Go back to wherever you have to go where you might undergo some persecution? Domine quo vadis. In that church, you see actual stones from the Appian Way and, and Peter on one side and Jesus on the other and Peter turning and following Jesus back. Tertullian writes that Peter was crucified. The budding faith that Nero first made bloody in Rome, Peter was girded by another since he was bound to the cross, noting that Peter endured a passion like his Lord's. Peter is now buried in Rome under the altar of St. Peter at St. Peter's Basilica. Paul, our friend who wrote Romans, was uh, beheaded because he had a he was a Roman citizen, so he had a swift beheading, but it's said that his head bounced three times. Paul is buried under the altar at St. Paul's outside the wall. It's said there that it's no doubt that the sarcophagus found under the pavement of the Basilica of St. Paul's is really that of the Apostle Paul. He's buried there. They took the sarcophagus out under the altar. They carbon dated it. Scientific tests proved the bones were from the first century, the bones and fragments that they found, and they authentically proclaimed that this is the body of the Apostle Paul. His head bounced three times, and there is a church, an earlier church, called the Church of St. Paul in the Three Fountains. It's one of the oldest churches in Rome. It's the traditional site of Paul's martyrdom on the Via Laurentina. But his body then, Christian friends, picked up Paul's body on the road and put it near the second mile marker on the Ostian Way, buried him in a family tomb of a Roman woman named Martrona Lucilla, and put up a grave marker near the road. It was there in the fourth century that the Roman Emperor Constantine built the first church commemorating Paul's martyrdom. And during the fourth century, the tradition tells us that Paul remains were moved into a marble sarcophagus and buried in the church's crypt, the tombstone reading Paulo, Apostolo, and Martyr. Now that is St. Paul's outside the wall of Rome. It's a beautiful church. His bones are there under the altar. You can kneel and pray there. Ancient records suggest that Nero personally knew Paul, that it's likely that Paul was beheaded through the order of the prefect of Rome. In that church, St. Paul outside the wall is a great place to study apostolic succession, which is an uninterrupted transmission of spiritual authority from the apostles through successive popes and bishops in the Roman Catholic Church. And so in his church there, you'll see all 266 popes in perfect succession in order. There's Francis, but each pope, when he's named pope, a mosaic is made in a circle, and then the circle is put up. You see all the circles going around the church, all the popes in order. Pope Francis is number 266, and there's a spot there ready for the next pope. Whoever the Holy Spirit elects will be put there next. The church started by Peter and Paul is one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. This is the oldest uh, image 
that has been found of St. Paul. The Vatican has it. It was in the catacombs of St. Tecla. It's been refurbished. It looks like that is the oldest image we have of what Paul might have looked like. So tonight, our final chapter, he gives some personal greetings. He gives his final instructions, and then he gives a doxology. Let's start with the personal greetings. I commend you, our sister Phoebe, a deaconess of the church at Sincere, that you may receive her in the Lord as benefits the saints and help her in whatever she may require from you, for she has been a helper of many and of myself as well. The deaconess, St. Phoebe now, she's commemorated September 3rd in both the Catholic and Orthodox churches. The troparion to St. Phoebe in the Orthodox church reads this, enlightened by grace and taught the faith by the chosen vessel of Christ, you were found worthy of the diaconate and you carried Paul's words to Rome. O deaconess Phoebe, pray to Christ God that his spirit may enlighten our souls. And the contact of St. Phoebe, Paul proclaimed you a protector of many, and you did become his helper. Hearken to those who approach you with faith and who cry out to you with love. Rejoice, glory of Corinth and pride of Achaia. Rejoice, you lamp of Sinchere. Rejoice, O deaconess Phoebe. Because Phoebe was a deacon, a lot of people turned to her protesting that women today should be deacons. Cardinal Giuseppe Petrocci, the Archbishop of L'Aquila, Italy, was just named by Pope Francis to head a commission, and they will again be studying the possibility of women being deacons in the church, deacons like Phoebe was in the time of Paul. There are 10 members on that committee, five of whom are women. They come from all over the Ukraine, the U.S., Spain, Great Britain, Switzerland, Italy, and France. And one of our own from Omaha, Nebraska, is on the papal committee to study women deacons, and that's Deacon James Keating, which you all know. So Phoebe was the first deacon. Sincrie is a seaport city near, very near Corinth where Paul was writing this letter right on the eastern side of the isthmus of Corinth there. Phoebe had a home base in Sincrie. She had a house church. This is where the early churches met in homes. There weren't buildings yet. And many Pauline scholars believe that deaconess Phoebe was the one trusted by Paul to deliver this precious letter to the Roman church. And remember, this letter to the Romans will have Paul's is the crown jewel of Paul's theology. It's a very important letter, and he entrusts it to this woman, this deaconess named Phoebe. Paul refers to her as a servant and a deacon and a trusted helper and patron of many, so she's very generous. Now, Phoebe is a Greek name, and remember what Paul's up against in Greece. We've talked a lot about Rome, but he's writing this letter from Corinth, Greece. And in Greek mythology, for instance, Phoebe, the name Phoebe, was a titaness of brilliance and the moon. Her name, Phoebe, means pure, radiant, or bright. And Phoebe was married to her own brother, Titan Coes. And together they had two children, Asteria and Leto, and they gave birth to Olympian twins, Apollo and Artemis. Now those are names you should remember from your Greek mythology studies in fourth and fifth grade. Artemis, the Greek goddess of the hunt, and her twin brother Apollo, the Greek god of the sun, the light, archery, and music. The temple of Artemis in Ephesus will be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. We'll get to that next week. But Artemis will be called Diana to the Romans. Apollo keeps his name. By both Greeks and Romans, he is Apollo, and he is a, a, a great god, little g-god to the Greeks and Romans at the time. Now, according to Greek mythology, it was grandmother Phoebe who handed the Oracle of Delphi to Apollo, her grandson, as a birthday present. Phoebe was the third goddess to hold the great Oracle of Delphi, which she in turn bestowed upon her grandson Apollo for his birthday. That was part one of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 16, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. 
To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible Studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.